Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the soundtrack to a life. Soundtrack to a life. I am Chris because I don't know. My parents named me that, I guess. Well, we're being real technical about it. I am Chris because I was born on St. Patrick's Day. My parents had previously planned to name me Patrick. This is all real, by the way. I see your face. They had planned to name me Patrick, but then I was born on St. Patrick's Day, which my mom thought would be a little on the nose, which is why I'm not named Patrick, and also which is why. My first name, Chris, is so boring and basic because they didn't have a second name picked out in advance, and I feel like they probably panicked a little bit in the moment. And now you know a little bit more about me. Mike, welcome back. Why were you, why are you, what the hell was that? Why are you named that? Why, why am I named Mike? Because uh, I think the other option was George, and who the fuck wants to name their child George? Ooh, that would have made you ageless, though. Oh, God. They all, you, you'd have grown up introducing yourself to people as George, and then they'd have always gone, No, that's an old person's name. Yeah, yeah, I was nearly named George. My sister was nearly named George, and apparently my parents had told me that they were going to name my sister either Jennifer or George, depending on what she was when she was born, because they didn't know. And I guess for the first, like, two or three months, I called her George. Is George gender neutral? No. I think it is. Was there a character on a TV show called George who was female? I mean, if you go George, was the little yeah Georgia maybe? Yeah, but it was shortened so to George shortened or Georgie. Yeah, yeah. George is gender neutral. Jennifer definitely isn't. No, definitely not. But Jennifer is an old person's name. So is Michael. But like old, like how we're old. Not old, like twenty or thirty years older than us. I'd say there's a fair number of older Michaels. Sure, but it's pretty evergreen. Like, if you name your child Murray, you know exactly when they were the named. age range yeah. of that Murray. Yeah. Whereas all Jennifers are 8 to 10 years older than me. That's why every movie star was named Jennifer for that four-year span in the early 2000s. Uh, there was also, yeah, it was like the most popular name through all of the 80s. Like, my parents were nothing if not creative. They chose the two most popular names that year and for every year following for like 20 years. Oh, my brothers are named Michael and David. I know. Yeah, right? So Just getting boring and basic with it. This has been Names with Mike and Chris. <laughs> Tune in next week for... Wait, that's my other show. <laughs> Welcome to the soundtrack to a life. Mike and I are here discussing Cooking on Three Burners 2009 record, Soul Messin'. Mike, tell me about this record. What's your relationship with this piece of music? So, having started university, I'm doing a lot more walking these days. I'm walking to and from home, walking around the campus, you know, walking from class to class. And one of my best ways to be able to unplug after, you know, a mind-blowing class or, you know, shit, I've only slept for two hours or whatever, is to toss on some music and just really get into the groove of things. So, I've found that over the past year, I have 
really, really gotten into funk music because there is no way not to strut to funk music. You're walking around like the king of the world when you listen to funk music. And though I know I'm not the king of the university, I'm certainly a crown prince, at least in my own mind. And this is one of those albums that has really, really been there for me through that. Strutting through the halls, listening to a funk version of Gary Newman. Yes, I'm in on that. Any of these tracks from this album just get me moving. Except for maybe the last track, and that's a nice lead out from the album. But if you want to move, you want to be listening to this album, in my opinion. Fair. And I do think it's funny that we each brought each other a funk record, not knowing that the other had brought one for us. Mm -hmm. Even though these guys and 90s era Prince could not be more different from Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, Prince constructs the album all on his own. He plays his own instruments and he controls his own recorded output to the maximum degree that he's able, which creates a really auteur-y sense of music being made. Whereas Cooking on Three Burners is lighter and looser and jammier. I appreciate that all of the members of this band obviously like each other. Yeah, I mean, these guys are, uh, officially speaking, they're a trio. Though, I mean, almost always have some other person in for tracks. You're hearing bass and drums and the organ, the Hammond organ. Those are like the three main parts to it. But there's always some guitar in there. There's sometimes vocalists, all of this. Yeah, I get the feeling that a huge portion of their stuff is just, this is jams that they've recorded demos of and then sort of redid in the studio, sort of thing. So, Because, yeah, yeah, there's no dictatorial vision being enforced. It's just three people who love funk doing that thing that they love really well. Yeah, I mean, the great thing with this is you can get into it and not be overwhelmed by it. Like I've often said, I need to process this album. This isn't one that takes process. It's just there for you. It's just like, here's your silver platter. Take this and enjoy. Yeah, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Whereas on Love Symbol, Prince was taking himself relentlessly seriously. (laughs) Yes, very much so. So these guys are not particularly prolific. Uh, I think they've only got like three studio albums, officially speaking. They've done another few that are like remix albums or what they call lab experiments. I'm not sure if those count as studio albums or not, but uh, the I work would, they have I would put count out. them. I think I'm at the point in my life where I'm counting that. Just because when I had Kev from Britpop Banter on and we were talking about Bentley Rhythm Ace, mm-hmm. the entire band was just them going to charity shops and finding weird records to pull stuff from and then sampling it and assembling it in the studio. And that very much counted as an album. So if that counts, then why not pulling from your own music? I guess, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's something to this in terms of some of the tracks. It's just like the drumming starts up and, you know, you get into the higher speed funk drumming and it just gets you going. Like I said, you can't not strut to this music. There's so much groove to it. But it's still not like, it's not like, oh, I've got to get somewhere sort of thing. It's like, eh, it's a little bit laid back, you know, you got your shoulders back and you're you're feeling good. Yeah, so. it's good wake up in the morning music. Very much so, yeah. It gets you out of bed. One of my exes would set her alarm to play James Brown first thing in the morning. And 
it was good wake-up music. It, it <laughs> like, moving, yeah. yeah, you are in a good mood by the time you get to your shower. Uh, it's funny to me that you brought me this, and then you've also brought me the apples. How many countries do you listen to funk bands from? I haven't actually done a full study on that. It seems that almost none of it is from North America. I mean, the North American sound is one thing, but I think what's happening around the world as sort of a response to the American sound is maybe better. Okay. All art is a conversation, after all. Mm -hmm. Here's my pitch for a TLC show. You and me travel around the world watching funk bands on the TLC's dime. I'm in. We could sell this show. Yeah, it'd be a global look at how one of the most American genres of music translates into different languages and cultures, where we could uncover deep truths about the human condition and how it's expressed through art, and also, again, this is important, travel the world going to gigs on someone else's dime. Funk from, like, Mongolia. What the hell would that be? TLC. I would like to know. Get at me. Let's make this show. It's really important that you bankroll this for us. It's not dumber than half the shows on your network right now. Very true. What the hell happened to that network? It used to have actual content to it. No, no it didn't. What? Do you know what? Mm. Okay, arguable. It was everything. always filler for dads. It's just that when we were kids, the filler our dads wanted was World War II documentaries. And now that we're dad's age, the filler that we want is dumb reality programming. Yeah, there's a reason why I haven't had TV in a long time. You don't like dumb reality programming? I don't like TV. Then how do you day drink? I just do it? I don't need an excuse to day drink. That seems weird. Keep in mind, I work in an overnight shift. My night drinking is day drinking. I get home at 7.30 in the morning and I crack a beer and that is my night drinking. If I'm three drinks in and it's two o'clock in the afternoon, you better goddamn believe drag race is on. I can't get behind reality TV. It is the cheapest, most useless form of television. Yeah, no, it's candy for dinner. But also, I'm a grown man. I can have candy for dinner if I want sometimes. <laughs> and it shouldn't surprise me that Australia produces good funk bands, given that one of my favorite goth bands and also my favorite disco artist are both Australian. Okay, disco artist, I... Uh... It's Kylie. Yeah. Kylie is so fucking good. Yeah. Okay. And Nick Cave. Oh, okay, of course. It, see, I never really equate Nick Cave with goth. He's literally named the goth father, although I'm told that he hates that nickname. As I think he should. I mean, yeah, his music is dark, but I wouldn't I wouldn't equate it with goth. I don't know, maybe that's just me thing, but... Uh... Fair enough. Anyways, back to this album. They've got a couple of uh, session vocalists on this, uh, Kylie Audist and Fallon Williams and... The, I mean, there's only four tracks with vocals on it, and they are wicked. They are some of the highlights of this album. Yeah, the vocalists are terrific. I had assumed that they were not members of this band. Just because, do you know what? Australian funk band, there's no accent. It was not a no, difficult exactly. bit of Sherlock Holmesing for me to put together. One of the members of Cooking on Three Burners has another project called The Bamboos, and Kylie... Alavist is a main vocalist on that band. The funk world, again, it's like, it's all sort of interchangeable. They all sort of jam with one another. So I imagine there's probably a funk scene down in Melbourne where all of these people sort of have the same circles and they've got various projects that they do with one another. Yeah, and scene bands always moonlight in one another's bands. That's a thing that happens wherever you go. And then once it hits a certain critical mass of commercial success, 
they eventually stopped doing that, except for some reason in um, rap and hip-hop. They continue doing they continue that forever. all the way through their career. Whereas, for example, this or Britpop or the scene that celebrates itself, shoegaze bands, yep. they eventually stop. And maybe they shouldn't. Maybe it would build more cohesion within a musical uh, genre. Well, I mean, I guess even as far back as like jazz, yeah. stuff like that, like you had people sessioning on your stuff, but you always named who was in there. And I appreciate the balance that they strike. They're obviously a really tight band that plays really well together and has a lot of experience playing with one another. But musicianship aside, they keep things very loose and organic sounding. Um, the songs are structured, but it's a really simple structure to give them a lot of room within that structure in which they can play and stretch out and feel things. And that creates a really warm, intimate sense. Yeah. I mean, you, you really get that particularly from the uh, Hammond organ. You can hear the just sort of messing with the lines. It's like, okay, the, the root of the song is in the bass, in the drums, and okay, they're holding that together. And then Hammond organ is just sort of going, just sort of doing whatever. And I'm sure this is probably take 78 of this track or whatever. And, you know, it's just like, oh, that's the one that just sounded best. Yeah, which is great. It makes the songs sound really lived in. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very comfortable. I don't know who the guitarist on uh, the track Piranha was, but yeah, there's some licks in there. Not a hard guitar lick, anything like that, but it just hooks you in. Each time it comes in, there's just this little bit of variation, and yeah, just gorgeous. Yeah, which is what happens when you keep it simple in the first place. Even the songs with more traditional song structure to them. Up, push it up, gonna bring it on down. Up, push it up, bring it all the way around. Isn't a lot of chorus. No, hardly, hardly <laughs> it, any chorus at all, in fact. But it is a chorus with a lot of forward momentum that's really easy to get swept up in. And this is a band that really leans into its sense of forward momentum, in my experience. Like, this is easy to get on board with, and then once you are on board, it is difficult to get off because it never stops moving. It, it never stops it. moving, but I mean, that's that's always been one of the things that I like the most about funk is, as you say, there's that forward momentum. You can't get off this train, and yet there's just this laid-backness, and it's like everything's just, just behind the beat. Some song is almost to the point of, like, so much behind the beat, it's almost to the next beat sort of thing, if you get what I'm saying. And... You're moving forward, but you're so chill in doing it. Part of the reason why I love this for, you know, walking around the school and all of this is it pulls me back. Like yeah. It keeps it like I'm still walking. I'm still moving forward with all the stuff I've got to get done. You know, I still have all this in mind, but I'm just like, ha, ah, I'm just going to go. Mikey's going to strut it. Yeah, which is great for this. I realized while listening to it that... Music like this is a shark in the sea. If it stops for even a moment, it will die. And I want that sense of this record is the bus from speed. You cannot slow down. In a funk band and in a punk band and in like a big beat act, I will not have the same warmth for them slowing down partway through the record that I would for a more traditionally structured guitar band or an alt-country band, or an indie act. And I don't know why. It's something to do with the mood that I am in that would make me reach for this music in the first place. I want to be always going, 
as when I, I look for this. As I said, you know, Proving Grounds, the last track on the album, it's by far the lowest key track. It's slow, it's down feeling sort of thing. If that had happened in the middle of this album, just yeah. like, no, the album's done at that point. Whereas as the final track in there, it is the nicest way to lead out of it. See, I wouldn't even have kept it there. Really? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, title track, Soul Messin', mm. perfect. Cut it. Like, the last track feels really out of place, feels out of step with the rest of the record. I want my funk record to constantly be moving. See, I, I find it, for me, sort of that end-off place, where it's like, okay, you've been on this train, you've gone, you've gone, and now you've hit your destination. It doesn't lead to an immediate, okay, this is just an album that's on repeat. It just, like, okay, this is a time and a place, you go through this time and place, and then you're at the end of that time and place, and you get off, and you get on with whatever you're doing. Yeah. Maybe it's just that I don't need a gentle dismount. Like, this is not good music to chill out to. No. <laughs> and the fact that they end by trying to be felt weird. Especially after how successful it has been to that point mm -hmm. on being the music that it was trying to be. Everything leading up to that point was fantastic. And then this weird note at the end. Strange call. I don't hate it. I would have maybe put it on a different record. Maybe put on a chill-out EP to follow this six months later. I believe their next studio album after this one has a better mix of, like, the up-tempo and the down-tempo stuff. It sort of jumps in between. And, but, of course, that's not the album we're talking about. So. It's very true. I also I want to think this is nothing, but I'm going to say it anyway. Mm. I love the titles. Like, Soul Messin', Tokyo Saucer, Dog Wash. I love that track. It's, it's Goose It Up. Four and twenty. Yep. That is certainly not referencing anything. Who could imagine? No. Like the title that a band chooses for a song, especially when the band makes instrumental music, is very where it could literally be yeah. anything. Yeah. Like I think that's what they choose is telling about the personality of that band. <laughs> yeah. And I think in this case that's very much to their credit. Yeah. Like you do get a very clear sense like you don't know exactly what's happening but if somebody said what are you listening to oh i'm listening to tokyo saucer by cooking on three burners they don't know what genre of music it is but they definitely know what tone right off the bat without ever having actually listened to this band yeah exactly <laughs> the album itself i take a listen to it and it just puts me in that great mood it's, it, you can't be down to this. I may have had almost no sleep, or I may be getting ready to do a presentation, or this, that, or the other thing, and I may be losing my shit, but this album comes on, and all that sort of just doesn't go away, but it just sort of gets pushed back, just like the overall feeling of the album, where it's just like, alright, cool, uh, I, need, I need some 4 and 20. Chill the fuck out, Mike. But, like, it's an energetic chill-out. Yeah. It's summertime, fun-time music. Yeah, I would say I'd say that's a good appraisal of it. Like, yeah. this is not music to drive to at night in the rain. There are other bands doing that job. Yeah. This is music to put on at some kind of, like, outdoor barbecue party type situation. Like, you could put this on at your birthday next week, and it would fit in really nice with that kind of atmosphere. Hopefully. Hopefully. Long-time listeners... Yeah, yeah. Mike's yeah, hopefully, Burning right. Man themed birthday party is coming up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I will keep you posted as to whether anyone is set on fire. The theory is there will be no setting on fire. Uh, we've built the effigy again. Uh, worked really well last year. We have refined the effigy this year. So uh, theoretically, it'll keep everyone out of the fire, but uh, the fun time will still be had. So I have zero doubt there will be a delightful amount of danger. Finally, <laughs> an appropriate amount of danger at a birthday party. I aim to please. <laughs> Previous chair burns, too much danger. Parties that don't have liquor and an open flame at all, not enough danger. Yeah, yeah, this party, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> it's the Goldilocks. Yeah, yeah Goldilocks zone. Of party. parties from which you might not come home. <laughs> well, maybe we haven't had the cops called on us yet. That's that's still an experience I need to have. That's impressive. I, it's very impressive, Man. Actually, considering the size of the fire we've had sometimes. We got the cops called on us so much in high school. Yeah. That's that's the time to get cops called on you. As a grown-ass man, you got to start to question your priorities. As a 16-year-old in somebody's parents' suburban home. <laughs> I'm an overgrown child anyway, so I, I don't really ride with that. I'm fine if I'm having parties that are that much fun. Fair. So did the cover of Cars work for you? It's good. It's kitschy. I wouldn't say that it worked. There's that instant recognition factor, which is like, okay, that's fun. But as a cover, I wouldn't say it's got anything to really say. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt as well. Of all of the songs on the record, this was the only other one that didn't really connect with me. Yeah, and it, it falls like literally right in the center of it. And just sort of like, eh. It's like a 90s ska band doing a random 80s cover. Okay, so... It doesn't bring a lot to it. And I would rather... I would rather listen to more cooking on three burners. Yeah. Jamming. Okay. Yeah. Than this. But it is a big swing, and I respect it in that way, but I don't know that it's a good match. In terms of match to the rest of it? No. I yeah. would I would totally agree with you there. Uh yeah. not a good match. Is it bad? No. No, it's, it's not, not bad. No, it's it not just... bad. It just doesn't super work. Yeah. Cars is meant to be cold and austere because it is a song about social isolation and how the modern world keeps us atomized and prevents us from ever really connecting with one another. And that feels like subject matter that's a little bit out of this band's lane. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very much so. I definitely think that they could crush an 80s cover because they're an excellent band. Mm Mm-hmm. I think they've got 80s covers on one of their other albums. I can see them destroying a Go-Go's cover. Get a vocalist in, do Head Over Heels. That'd be the kind of thing they would knock out of the park. They're a fun band. Yeah. Cars is not a fun song. No. (laughs) Well, a lot of people take it as being fun. This is something I can dance to. This is, you know, all that. But it's like, if you actually listen to the song itself, yeah, not, not, not fun. But even the people who find it fun and to dance to, if you go to Hang the DJ or some such thing, like, this is like a fun song to dance to, said the person with their face painted white and a tear drawn in on one cheek. Yeah, you are having fun, but it's a very specific kind of fun. There's, yeah, a a flavor of fun to it, yeah. (laughs) It's particularly uh, Kylie's voice on this, Kylie Aldis, the vocalist on two of the tracks, like, her voice, just that gospel, soulful feel to it. She's so good. Yeah. I would love to hear more work by her. Uh, I haven't investigated further into that, but her voice is incredible on the track she's on, on Push It Up in particular. So. Yeah. 
I may have to look into her as well. She's yeah. a phenomenal vocalist. I would love to uh, hear her doing more material. The guy's voice is good. He's great, too. It's good. It just didn't draw me in quite as much. They're great vocalists to be on a record together. Like, they sound different enough that the album comes off as richer and more textured from the fact that they're both doing songs, which helps a lot with the construction of this music. I wonder how they recreate it live. Do they, like, bring them, or...? Maybe. I, and like I said, you know, I know that Kylie is in another one of the guys' side project things, so, again, I think it's, you've got the funk community that exists apparently down in Melbourne, which sure. is, of course, news to me. But there's this funk community, and so they're probably all at the same gigs at the same time and opening for one another and all this sort of thing. So it's Just probably randomly a case of now they're going to hop back on stage, and oh, they were our opener, and now they're going to sing on this track sort of thing. I have to imagine that's how it sort of goes. That makes sense. And these don't f- feel like the sorts of bands that are traveling the world selling out stadiums. Or they need to make that sort of decision in their life? Again, you're you're never going to see these guys in Canada because flying over from Australia is way too difficult. But, unlike apples, they still exist, I have at least. family in Australia. Well, there's that. Yeah, family in Australia. And yeah, I could go down and see them. But I, I'm not flying 32 hours to go see a funk show. I'm sorry. And visit family. I'm not flying 32 hours to visit family and see a funk show. And travel to New Zealand and... Go and okay, do some do. Lord of the Rings tourism. Yeah, see, I'm not as big on the Lord of the Rings tourism. Catch the dude from the... Crowded House play live. Maybe I would just like to see New Zealand. Really, yeah, it's, it's a... you know again with the travel shows checking out funk. They've got to have a funk scene down there. The checks out again. TLC, come on, pick up the tab for this TLC. Get it together. We've asked you for so little, <laughs> and you have delivered. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm... <laughs> So much hate on TLC. I, I like TLC. Like, bagging on them is easy and fun. But I watch, I have watched conservatively one show that they've made, minimum, for the entirety of their reality shows all of the time period. Jesus. Like, they have found a brand that they do very well. And admittedly, I think they were the first sort of channel that really went that way with it. Yeah. Like, well before, like, History or Amy or any, uh, any of those went that way, TLC sort of had the reality thing going even as early as, the, like, the mid-90s. They knew what they were and they were good at it. Yeah. But so. we'll still make fun of them for it. Yeah. Life isn't fair sometimes, TLC. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. And I do feel like this is the kind of group where the smaller... I'm sure they would disagree because it is the goal of any band to become successful and communicate the music that they've made widely. But I feel like this is the kind of band where the smaller the venue in which you caught them was, the better they would sound. Seeing these guys at, like, a large venue would not be great. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that would work. Whereas, like, a small, sort of divey-ish bar, I yeah. think that could be a lot of fun. Like, there's already a sense of, I'm letting you in on something that not a lot of people know about, so keep it under your hat mm-hmm. to this. Um, it's insidery. Not in a bad way, but definitely in a way. And the smaller and more intimate the crowd, the more that they would maintain that sense. There are groups like U2 or Fall Out Boy or Def Leppard or Coldplay who build for that kind of mass communication and always have. Like, it feels weird to think that before they were successful, 
they were playing. They were unsuccessful. (laughs) Wait, no, they were just always successful. No, they were always on a stadium. They were not on a stadium because there was no such band. And then they got onto a stadium and then became a band. (laughs) It was literally that moment that they picked up their instruments and wrote the songs on that spot. Yeah. And Cooking on Three Burners feels like it's the opposite of that. There's been a lifetime of work here, and they have never... Well, they might have aspired to larger than the dive bar venue, but it's not going to be, I want to be playing Wembley Stadium, sort of. Yeah, they feel like a band that you catch by accident walking into a pub to grab your dinner and then are delighted by. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing wrong with that kind of music, in my opinion. You know, don't get me wrong. I love, I love some of the stadium acts. Maybe not the biggest stadium acts, but like sort of the mid-stadium. Those ones I really love. But there's something to be said just for the dive bar band, for the people you just sort of happen upon. And that's that's how this album came to be in my collection was. It's like, I just sort of happened upon it. And one of the tracks had shown up on my Discover Weekly or whatever. It's like, okay, I'll check this out. And yeah, really fell in love with it. So. Yeah, they feel like that kind of band. Like, they don't obliterate news coverage in your town because they are going to play a show. They show up by accident and kind of just lure you in, which is correct. When a band like this blows up big, they cease to be it this band. feels band. weird. Yeah, I do. Like every so often, every like 10, 15 years, a small local bar band will convince the world that they are the world's small local bar band. Hootie and the Blowfish. For example, yeah. Huey Lewis in the News. Yeah. Just really... Fun, down homie, they're your corner band, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and then for like two years, they'll be gigantic, and then we'll all go, wait, the world's local bar band isn't a thing because the concept it is makes no sense. <laughs> it's like the world's girl next door. It's like, wait, no. I would not watch Huey Lewis and the News in their prime sell out a packed saddle dome. I would and still want to watch Huey Lewis and the News at, like, the River Cree, playing their smaller room in their 50s and 60s. That sounds like a great experience. That would be a lot of fun, I think, yeah. That sounds a better experience than catching them at their peak. Mm-hmm. I want that smaller house. That's the kind of feeling that they're putting forward. I have to call you out, by the way, okay. on an unrelated note. For someone who swears up and down that he doesn't want light or joyful music in his life. This is, I know. You have brought me consistently charming, sprightly music that doesn't take itself too terribly seriously. You've brought me multiple small-scale funk bands. I feel like you have more room in your heart for joy than Uh, you are willing to admit. This year has definitely taught me that. I wouldn't go so far as to say Amon Tobin was, you know, happy and sprightly. That's that was, true. That was that was a darker one that I brought you. Yeah. But the other three now that I've brought you have all been funk and happy. Yeah, and then just immediately followed up with because I don't like happiness. Just allow yourself to love life. Mike. Yeah. No, and that you're, that's certainly been. You're nearly uh, forty now. There isn't really any angle to continuing to pursue the whole tortured artist thing. True. This is your podcast intervention. <laughs> love life. You have brought me a record of relentlessly fun music that is sharp and smart and propulsive and designed to invite you in. This is a party that you hope that you could get invited to and then have a blast once you're there. This is music for happiness. Yeah. 
You're a person who feels joy now. I, I, I may just be that. Yep. Yes! I, I may just be that. <laughs> I, I guess I'd... Ah, oh, shit. I better reevaluate my entire life. I broke your golf. That's been broken for a while. But, yeah. <laughs> nah, yeah, I may still wear almost exclusively all black, but that's just because it looks good, not because it's a statement of character. And you never have to figure out what to wear. Exactly. <laughs> this has always been my argument. But... We're going out. What are you going to wear? I don't know. Probably black cargo pants and a t-shirt from a gig I went to one time. I kind of got this aging punk thing going for me, and it's very easy to maintain. Yeah, see, I, I was accused a few years ago of being a new genre. I was dadcore, where it's like, I wear nothing but plain, single-color t-shirts. Okay. It cost me, like, $5 from Walmart, and, you know, decent, not like skinny jeans, not like super baggy jeans, just jeans. That's just my look, and that is my look for everything. And that's apparently a thing called dadcore. Mm -hmm. That okay, makes sense. Sure. Now, what do the bands sound like? Which uh, what the dadcore bands? I hear, I hear core. There, I assume there has that, to be a dadcore. That's what I'm saying. Somebody's formed a dadcore band at least once. They will be a cover band. It's gonna be. It's gonna be a cover band. It's probably going to be a bunch of people who have been playing for on and off for many many years, but never really did a thing and you know, in their graying and balding status, have decided to become sort of a jam band who, you know, play covers. They might open for an actual band at some point, but they're not really in it for more than just the fun of performing. I'd say that's what it is. But then something that they do catches on on YouTube and gets 2 million, 3 million, 10 million views. And, the next and then all of a sudden they're a proper touring band and they're being covered in the most dad of music magazines. Oh. Rolling Stone. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Unlike the TLC, that burn was meant. I think we just wrote a movie. I think we just wrote a pretty okay movie, actually. Yeah. <laughs> One of the dads definitely uses this opportunity to reconnect with their estranged child. Mm -hmm. One, One of, the... of them does get into the drugs. One of them does get into the drugs. That's the divorced dad. He yeah. divorced right before they blew up big. Yeah, this is part of their, like bounce back from the divorce, like being part of the band. But then he's seduced by drugs and groupies. Yeah. And one of them, the drummer, remains completely oblivious. <laughs> just, to the just entire... It's the entire... Like, is the same person through yep. all of it. Wholesome suburban dad the entire way through. He's the anti-Keith Moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd watch this movie. That would be a good movie, I, actually. I, I think... Now, the argument is that movies are never made for us. That's very true. Like, there are no movies for the 35 through 50-year-olds of right now. All of the movies are for people significantly younger, you know, the 20-year-olds, or for the boomers. Because there will always be boomers. Because there have always been boomers. We, we, we've been through, <laughs> there will always be boomers. But the, the movies that are being made, as an example, The New Shaft. It's so a movie you, for boomers. It's a movie for boomers and millennials. Yep. Not us. I don't think that it's for millennials. I think you're unfairly maligning millennials. Uh, what did you say? Well, no, I yeah, think I the mean, millennials are better than that. Predominantly, it is predominantly for the boomers <laughs> in that it is Samuel L. Jackson saying, I don't understand what this new younger mm. you know, 20-year-old, like his grandson, his sure. son, something to that effect. I don't understand what you're talking about, all this sort of thing. 
you do have Richard Roundtree in there as as like Grandpa Shaft, but no, it's like it is very firmly at you know. I don't think it's being pitched at the generation it's making fun of though. Like it's pitched to boomers by attacking millennials. Yeah, because I, we conveniently do not have to participate in that culture war. We're outside of that. We're, That's correct. We will always stand outside of that. The forgotten generation. We will. We there will are the, some upsides. We will. We will die. The forgotten generation. I'm okay with that. We have no great. War. As there was already a forgotten generation, but we didn't remember that. <laughs> it was two generations before the uh, boomers. Yep. That was the, the generation um, that came of age during the Depression. It was also a small generation because during the Depression, people, people were not died. down to fuck. Yeah. That's how you can tell the size of a generation, how down to fuck people were. The Depression? Not so much. Getting home from Europe, seeing your significant other for the first time after murdering Hitler? Down to fuck. <laughs> Going through the, the realizing, Vietnam realizing, oil crisis and all of that of the mid to late 70s? Not down a fuck. Also the invention of reliable birth control. That helps. <laughs> let's, let's face it, there's an actual reason our generation is smaller than the boomers and the millennials. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, that you didn't get pregnant on accident as often as once you did. So then why is our generation smaller than the millennials? Because, of course, if anything... Aging boomers were finally ready to have kids. Yeah, stands to reason. The people who put off having a kid ten years finally did. So, yeah, these are the people who were, like, 40 yep. deciding to have kids. Yeah. Do you know what just, is a... Just do the world a fucking favor. Get snipped, assholes. That's not the worst plan. And then let us tax your inheritance and use it to pay for schools and roads. Do you know what was some boomer nonsense? That movie about the dude who hit his head and then the world forgot about the Beatles? Oh. <laughs> yesterday? Yeah. Finally, uh, another movie... About the fucking Beatles, a band that will never be on this show. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that was directed by Danny Boyle, was it not? Danny, you're better than this-ish. Danny, Danny has not he's, been better than this for a long he's while. He's better-ish. Long while. Come on. Uh, like, Sunshine, maybe. That was like... 2004. years ago. 2004, 2005. Oh, God, we got old. Yeah. But, like, even Slumdog was not great. Nope. It's like, no. you're looking at, like... You're you not know, down with poverty porn? You're looking at, like, Sunshine, 28 Days Later, The Beach. Yeah. Ah, oh, Danny. And that's, that, that's his era. Yeah. I mean, you see Trainspotting 2, and it actually sours Trainspotting, the original. I didn't see Trainspotting 2. It's horrible. Don't do it. It will sour your opinion of the original. Because you'll go, wait a second, these aren't characters. These are shit people. Why am I watching this? Okay, in fairness, they were shit people. At the they, time were, too. they were shit people we that, were... that we thought we could empathize with, but... Because we were in high school, and we were basically trash. High schoolers are basically <laughs> trash. Yeah. High schoolers today, maybe you're better than high schoolers when I was in high school. I don't know you. I don't know your life. I'm just saying that when train spotting came out, high schoolers were 100% uniformly across the board... A trash. Danny Boyle, not invited to direct our dadcore movie. And on that note. <laughs> Excellent. This, this has been, been a weird one. This has been a super weird one. This has been the soundtrack to a life. Follow us along on Facebook and Twitter. SoundtrackCast. SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. If you've really loved a Danny 
Boyle movie from 2005 on, tweet that to me, because I like Danny Boyle. I remember him and fondly think of his movies that he made, and I didn't realize until just now that they were all more than a decade ago and I'm an old. So if there's a really great recent one that we're missing out on, feel quite free to tell us so. I'm going to end the episode, as I tend to do, on three questions. I'm 100% going to listen to this again. It's so fucking good. It's real fun. The last track aside, it's kind of a down note. It's kind of a Doors pastiche. I also have an issue with the Doors that we won't go into yeah, right now. Yeah, we don't we've already time. We've already aired my weird laundry about the Beatles. I'll whine about the <laughs> Doors later. I'm going to definitely explore the rest of their catalog further. I'm going to probably um, explore that side project as well. It's the Bamboos. Been, it's really good. Yeah. This is really fun, fresh, interesting music that's really engaging and easy to follow along. You have already said that you don't have any... I don't really have anything to plug. I mean, I work in an adult store, so I say just get freaky however you're going to get freaky. Have fun. You've just listened to an episode about a funk band, and previous to that you listened to an episode about Prince. Clearly, this is a sex-positive podcast, even though we don't overtly say so that often. Do we have to? I wouldn't think so. We're going to close on Soul Messin', the title track of the album that we just spent the last 40 minutes sort of discussing. And then we will be back in two weeks with a different guest and a different record, and I hope to uh, talk to you then. Have a great night. Soul Messin'!